The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Good morning, and thank you for joining host Cheryl Esposito for an intriguing hour of Leading Conversations. Each week, Cheryl brings together big thinkers to the Voice America Business Channel. Now here's your host, Cheryl Esposito. Welcome to Leading Conversations. This is Cheryl Esposito. Today we have a special guest who has been with us before, Chip Conley, who is the founder of Joie de Bib, which is the America's second largest boutique hotel company consisting of um, many, many award-winning hotels. And he started this at a very young age, and we're going to learn about that. He's an author of some bestsellers, Peak, How Great Companies Get Their Mojo from Maslow, and his most recent book, Emotional Equations, Simple Truths for Creating Happiness and Success. Chip, welcome back to Leading Conversations. Oh, it's great to be with you, Cheryl. Thank you. It's good to have you here. Where are you today? I'm, I'm loving it. I'm in my backyard writing cottage. <laughs> oh. Everybody should have a backyard writing cottage. I, you know, I, li- I live in San Francisco, and I've been on the road pretty much full-time in the first quarter of this year. Oh, speaking all over the world and um, for, the, for the new book, and it's just nice to be home now for a few days. I bet, and, and we are having a few moments of sun in the midst of all the rain we've been having in the last few days. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, so enjoy the cottage and the sunshine. Thank you. So, Chip, let's start with um, where we left off. Last time you were here leading conversations, you had just completed your book, Peak, How Great Companies Get Their Mojo from Maslow. It was wildly successful, and You wrote this book because you had started becoming interested in what motivated people to be their best, to show up at work and and to enjoy and make work meaningful. So this has evolved a bit to where you are today, and your newest book, Emotional Equations, Simple Truths for Creating Happiness and Success, once again, wildly successful, and it's only been out for a month or a couple of months. Mm -hmm. So, so tell us how you got to this book. Well, yeah, so the, it, <laughs> the weirdest thing is that when a downturn hits and I'm a CEO in trouble, instead of running for the business section of the bookstore, I, I go to the psychology or the self-help section. <laughs> <laughs> so Peak was a result, the Peak, How Great Companies Get Their Mojo from Maslow, was a result of the dot-com bust. And and me trying to figure out how to make uh, you know my company survive and then succeed and thrive during a difficult difficult economy and I guess I would consider that period this is ten years ago and then the book came out five years ago and um, what I learned was that psychology and the the theory the iconic hierarchy of needs theory of Maslow can be a really valuable operating tool for any company that wants people to live up to their potential and, and become self-actualized. And um, 
as a result, we tripled in size. During this great recession that we're in right now, which is now we're four years into it, I had sort of a different relationship with my work and with my perspective on life. Instead of feeling like a gladiator where I was, I wanted to, you know, figure out a way to help the company, I was actually feeling a bit like a, a prisoner. <clears throat> what was happening for me four years ago in early 2008 is I could see that I, I had been CEO for the company I started for 22 years. But, or 21 years, I think, at that point. And, uh, but I was really clear that I didn't want to be doing it anymore. And yet, you know, I didn't have, and I was, not, I was not taking a salary at that point, and I could see I was running out of cash myself. The company was running out of cash. But you just can't sort of say, well, I'm going to quit my job and go find something else to do when you're the <laughs> founder and CEO of a company. And, and so I really felt like I needed to, to oh, you know, seatbelt myself into the saddle and and sit through a very difficult time. But I also was feeling just a, a, just a collection of emotions that were creating a really bad internal weather system for me. So I had a relationship ending. I had a son going to prison wrongfully. I had a, um, who ended up getting out after eight months out of San Quentin. But no, no fun to have any family member in a, a prison when they're not supposed to be there. And Oh, and then I had, I had friends starting to commit suicide, which was the weirdest part and the hardest part um, when you're feeling your own uh, emotional despair, having close friends, and one of them in particular who had the same, who has the same name I have, his name is Chip, and he's our insurance broker and one of my closest friends. You know, you have a close friend commit suicide and they have the same name you have and you're feeling depressed yourself. It's just, it's a lot to handle all at once. And... Um, so I started reading uh, in this Great Recession four years ago. I started reading Viktor Frankl's Man's Search for Meaning. And let me say that if you're having a bad day and you want to think, okay, my God, you know, I, you know the world is, is not fair to me, read the first half of Man's Search for Meaning, uh, which yeah. is Viktor Frankl's, oh, yeah. basically his story of what it was like to be a psychologist who believed that meaning was the fuel of life who ended up in a concentration camp during World War II. And you'll realize that your life is so much better than what he was going through during that time. And I, as I was reading the book, I had this moment of feeling like I really want to figure out how to make this theory of, of meaning practical on a daily basis for myself. And then I had my own personal experience in the summer of 2008 where I broke my ankle and I got a bacterial infection in my leg. And then long story short is I, I went flatline on stage. I, my heart stopped at age 47. Uh, and I was in a place where for the next 90 minutes my heart would stop and then it would start and then it would stop and start. Unfortunately, there were paramedics there and I was in, ultimately in, a, in an emergency room and in an ICU but that's when I said, I really, I really need to figure out a way to make this man's search for meaning real in my life daily. And I turned it into an equation. Not because I ever thought I would actually share this equation with anybody, but I just needed my own practical way to make sense of this. And, you know, some of us are scared of math. I'm not a big math fan. But math is really about relationships. And it's usually the relationship of numbers. But for, for our conversation today, let's talk about the relationship of emotions so the equation that worked for me, the math that worked for me on meaning, um, was despair equals suffering minus meaning. 
So what does that mean? So if suffering is sort of ever-present in your life and, and quite often in a bad recession or in a bad marriage or a bad job or whatever's going on for you, for Viktor Frankl, certainly in a concentration camp, suffering is ever-present, and it's the first noble truth of Buddhism as well, um, that suffering is always to be found if you want to look for it. Meaning, on the other hand, is the variable. So in this little sac- sacred algebra equation, uh, if you increase the meaning and suffering is the constant, despair goes down. And what the equation helped me to understand was that there's an inverse proportion, uh, there's an inverse relationship between meaning and despair. And the more I knew that, the more I could say, well, what's the lesson I'm learning right now? Or if I'm going through emotional boot camp right now and this is so difficult, what emotional muscles am I learning and exercising that are going to serve me better later in life? And it became Well, I, I want to stop you right yeah. for a second. And, and back up a bit, because what I'm struck by is as you describe yourself being on stage, flatlining, <laughs> i.e. died, yeah. right? You, it, you are saying this in such a matter-of-fact way, and yet I can only imagine that when you were on stage and when you were able to come back to consciousness, um, there must have been a whole lot of emotion going on there. Well, yeah, I mean, it was, it was weird. If you're, I look at it as divine intervention, and I, I say that um, not in any joking manner. I, I was at a stage in my life where I really, at times, was talking with friends about, you know, I wish I could have a car accident that wouldn't kill me, but it would give me a, a reason to escape the web I felt stuck in. Um, I, you know, we had a we had just launched between January of 2007 and September of 2008. We launched 15 new hotels around the state of California, and we were just—it was terrible timing. And I had a bunch of people who, uh, hotel owners, who were freaking out, knowing that they're going to lose their hotels to the bank, and and basically everyone was relying on me to sort of right. help be the savior. And I didn't want to be the savior anymore. <laughs> Even in normal times, I was sort of. Uh, my calling of being the CEO would have been a job, you know, had sort of deflated from calling to career to job. But now it was, it felt like a prison sentence. And so I guess I was sort of hoping for something that would allow me to have the reset button start. And I didn't want to die, but I didn't, and I had friends, I had six friends commit suicide in a four-year period. So I had a lot of experience with people who decided to to press the reset button in a different way than I was going to do it. <clears throat> but it was weird that all of a sudden, with all of that on my mind, I did have this experience. And initially, there were not there were the most most pre- prevalent emotion when I would come out of being in my flatline experience was I had memories of you know what I was, my vision was. But I felt very liberated by it all. I felt all of a sudden like okay. <laughs> I know, and I know, I know. Now I understand the the base of Maslow's hierarchy of needs. <laughs> you know, we could talk about self actualization, but frankly, you know, breathing breathing is a really important ingredient right. to life. And I, I got to a place where I just realized that this was my opportunity, my 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 get out of jail free card, which didn't mean that I could just leave my job. But it, what it did was it initiated my process over the next two years of figuring out how to sell a majority interest in my company in the, in the worst of times and uh, after 24 years uh, no longer be CEO of the company and move more specifically in the direction of 
my new calling, which I felt for a while, and, and I really felt suffocated. Uh, it, it felt suffocated during that period in 2008, which is I wanted to be a writer and speaker and and go out and study psychology and spirituality and how to integrate it into people's work life. And I have done that for 20... I've been, I did that and grew a company to 3,500 employees, but I felt I felt quite confined. Um, and this gave me the opportunity to say, okay, this is a new life I have now, and I'm lucky, and um, what am I going to do with it? Uh, well, and this is you finding your own meaning. Yep, it did. It was, it was absolutely that. It was sort of like, okay, now that I've had this experience... It's not about Chip just sharing, you know, my my emotional equation, despair equals suffering, my my meaning by myself. It was now about okay, now I need to share my sense of meaning with the world, and I really do need to figure out a way to move to the place where I can do that. So, I did. I ultimately shared that equation, despair equals suffering minus meaning, at a annual management retreat of our top eighty managers in November. I was supposed to give a, a cheerleading speech to them uh, going into 2009, but it was like so apparent that we were about to go into a completely death spiral economy for the hotel business and that we were very vulnerable again that I threw away my speech that I was supposed to give and I just went up to the easel and I showed them the equation and I said, I see a lot of suffering in the room. There's 80 of us here. And Abraham Maslow used to talk about great companies have great psychohygiene. And to me, what psychohygiene means is I was fortunate enough to read Maslow's diaries for the last 10 years of his life. His family gave them to me. And what I was able to see is that for him, what psychohygiene meant and for what it meant for me was the idea that when you're going through a really difficult time as an organization, it's a bit of a sweat box. And how do we create the catharsis where we as a group going through that difficult time, use that as a bonding experience and as a means of getting to know each other more and feeling the strength of, of the group. And that's what we did. We spent an hour focusing on my equation, and boy, people just had their catharsis. They cried. They bonded. They felt stronger. The vulnerability and authenticity that was going on in the room, including myself, helped to create a powerful connection between people. And after the talk, someone came up to me and said, do you have an equation for jealousy <laughs> or, or anxiety or happiness? And I, you know, that's when I realized, okay, maybe I'm supposed to actually, I thought this equation thing was just for myself and maybe for my company. I did at that point say, I want to go learn more about our emotions because our emotions, there's these, we, it's this weird thing. We sort of feel like we have this evil twin and that in the worst of times, our emotions get really out of control. And the, what I wanted to understand is how can we understand our emotions in such a fashion that we can actually have our emotions represent the best in us as opposed to our emotions getting the best of us. I like that. Because, you know, we do feel like we're sometimes a victim of our emotions. Yep. Yep, yep. I, we do. And, I mean, well, someone who actually takes their life is the ultimate victim of their emotions. And I didn't want to... I really wanted to be a testament for somebody who could say, you know, I went through the worst of times, the dark night of the soul, um, and I came out the other side. And that's, you know, that's what my book, Emotional Equations, really speaks to. And, um, and you know, you could say, well, you know, you're a CEO. Who's, stop complaining. <laughs> no, no self-pitying here, guys. Um, no, I, you know, the reality is when, you're, when you realize that as a leader, you're the emotional thermostat of your organization, it's really hard if you're going through some depth of depression 
and feeling really a lot of anxiety and feeling like you don't want to be doing something anymore and you happen to be the CEO of a company that's in a in a in a bit of a death spiral. Right. Um, and so you know it was it was a great experience, um, not one I would ever want to do again, um, but one that taught me a lot. And um, I hope I was a good mentor and role model for other leaders in the organization during that time. Well, and and do you think that it affected your decision making capacity? Do you think you made mistakes during that time? We, I, mistakes. We always, we're always going to make mistakes. So I, I'm sure I made lots of mistakes. I think that what it helped me to do it, it helped liberate me to feel instead of feeling besieged as a victim. It helped me to instead look at what are some common sense solutions that will help me get the company myself and everybody involved in the organization to a safe harbor for a period of time while we're going through the worst of times and then to a place where in the long run there's a better long-term plan. And that's what I did. I mean, I ultimately sold a majority interest to a guy named John Pritzker whose father started Hyatt and he's a billionaire. And yeah. and it allowed me to, to get to a place where I didn't have to be CEO anymore and, and helped the company create a long-term strategy for how we would be capitalized with deeper pockets so that we didn't have, you know, we had two once-in-a-lifetime downturns in the same decade with, in the Bay Area with the dot-com bust and then the, uh, the um, Great Recession. So, yeah, it's been good. Well, and Chip, you, you, we know that you sold your interest, but you didn't leave Wadabe. Right. There is a special role you have with them, and we're going to talk about that when I'm right back after this. Stay connected. Sign up for our newsletter. Go beyond your favorite Voice America shows. Visit iradioblog.com. Leadership is not static. It evolves as you do. At Alexa Consulting, we work with CEOs, senior leaders, and leaders in transition who want to make a difference. Leaders who believe that good business is good for people, good for the world, and knows that conscious actions can have global impact. Are you ready to take your leadership to the next level? If you are, then visit our website at www.alexaconsulting.com. That's www.alexaconsulting.com. Alexa Consulting, developing leaders worldwide. The business community's first choice in Internet Talk Radio, Voice America Business Network. We appreciate you joining our leading conversations today. If you would like to participate in today's conversation, please call us now at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. Now back to your host, Cheryl. And welcome back to Leading Conversations. Cheryl Esposito, we're speaking with Chip Conley today. So, Chip, so you were with the company, bought it be, for 24 years. You yes. sold your interest. You started making a transition. You did not, however, leave the company completely. You're still a contributor. And you no. consider yourself the chief emotions officer there. Tell us what that means. <laughs> well, I... Uh, here's what I believe, um, and I, I believe that once you recognize that leaders are um, 
the emotional thermostats of their organizations and that, in fact, Daniel Goleman's work of 16 years ago around emotional intelligence suggested that two-thirds of the effectiveness of leaders has to do with their EQ as opposed to their IQ or their level of experience in the job. I do believe that um, CEOs are not chief executive officers as much as they're chief emotions officers. I think in the context of that, I think that we're all chief emotions officers. I think you're whether you're, you've got a family and you're the sort of leader in the family or whether you have a department and you're a department head and you have people that you're leading there or whether you're just leading yourself, having some facility and, and fluency around understanding your emotions and being intuitive about other people's emotions is one of the greatest gifts you can have as a, as a leader or as just a human being. So I'm, my involvement in the company now is I'm, I'm, you know, I am involved helping to create a hotel in downtown Palo Alto and, and a couple other things. But my primary involvement is really more and more just as an outside speaker and, oh, just hopefully a thoughtful provocateur in the business world where I'm able to help people to see the importance of emotions in the context of what it means to be a great leader. I like the way you make the distinction between Goldman's emotional intelligence and what you're talking about in terms of emotional fluency. Yes. And, and you've taken that into this step um, with the equations, which I love. And it's, um, I don't know if it's based on the work by Robert Plitchick, but I know you refer yeah. to Yeah. Let's talk about him. You know, here's here was the interesting thing, uh, Cheryl, was I was... So initially, I was interested in this first equation, and then I had, you know, I presented it to our senior leaders, eighty people, and they liked it, and they liked the idea of more emotion, emotional equations, and so I started doing my own deep dive into the nature of emotions and you know what we what we can learn. And I had, I'd always known that there was a color wheel, you know, red plus blue equals purple, and Isaac Newton created that. What I didn't know was that there was an emotion wheel. <clears throat> the emotion wheel was created, created about 30 years ago by Dr. Robert Pluchek. And what he believed was that, in fact, well, more than 30 years ago, almost 40 years ago, uh, what he believed is that if you combine, if you figure out what are the primary emotions and then you think of secondary emotions, it's just like with primary and, and secondary colors. If you combine one color with another, you get a third. And, and he believed that was true if you have joy plus anticipation, that equals optimism. And so he created a whole wheel of these emotions. And as I looked at that, I didn't necessarily agree with all of his choices of primary and secondary emotions, but it gave me a jumping off point for me to actually learn even more about um, the theory of emotions. Where do they come from in our body? Where, you know, how, how do you define what are the most you know, um, sort of fundamental emotions in our lives? And how do they mix? It's like if you have, you know, if we know on external weather, if you have a stormy day or a sunny day, it's a combination of barometric pressure plus elevation plus humidity. And, and well, same thing in your own personal life. If you have a stormy day or a sunny day in terms of your internal weather, it has to do with a collection of ingredients. And once you can sort of understand the ingredients for anxiety or happiness, you can influence those ingredients and actually improve or, you know, uh, have an impact on your emotions. So, so we can actually influence our weather patterns. <laughs> that's right. As opposed to the weather patterns that are out there in the sky. Well, but see, this is a very, that's a very apt metaphor because, again, part of the reason we say, you know, my emotions got the best of me is because somehow we think we can't actually influence the weather and that we are a victim of the weather and that we're a victim of our sort of Dr. Heckle and, or Dr. 
uh, <laughs> whatever, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. Yeah, um, and the reality is that we actually, you know, those emotions are ours. And how we learn to uh, make sense of our emotions is critical. Uh, let me read a quick quote from Viktor Frankl um, that's on page 20 of Emotional Equations in my book. And it's, this is a, the most fundamental piece of what he talked about in Man's Search for Meaning. He said, between stimulus and response, there is a space. In that space, <clears throat> in that space is our power to choose our response. In our response lies our growth and our freedom. So that's a really powerful statement. He's basically saying that um, we have the power to choose how we're going to respond in life. You know, even if you're in a concentration camp, um, and that we're not just the product of our decisions. But um, I'm sorry, we are the product of our decisions, not just the product of our circumstances. So I guess I look at life and emotions and say, you know. Once you can sort of identify what an emotion is telling you, you really can actually tap into the emotion and see what that message is meant for you to, to do, what you're supposed to do with it. And, you know, fear is protection and regret is teaching you something and sadness is suggesting you need to release something and joy uplifts and empathy unites. And once you start to see your emotions as instead of being you're the victim of them, but in fact they are just a little messenger system that says, here's what's going on for you, you know, observe it and don't react to it, but instead just respond to it and create the space to respond. You know, your emotions can be, you can have a great relationship with your emotions. Well, and you talk, you break this into the book, and I love the way you do this. You break this into um, dealing with difficult times, and there are different types of emotions. And then they have a part called getting the most out of your work life. And, and then you have a section called defining who you are and finding contentment. Let's focus a little bit on getting the most out of your work life, because I know that there are a lot of people who um, struggle with this, who struggle with the idea that job is a job is a job. You know, just as you said, your, your work as CEO went from feeling like a calling to a role to a job. And so let's talk about this one about workaholism. Oh, yeah. <laughs> There's a lot of that going around. Well, there always there's there there will be you know it's interesting uh, in 1971 so about 40 years ago was the first time that the phrase workaholism sort of shows up in literature um, and yet five four, what 40 years later um, we in the United States work five weeks more in terms of the number of hours we work per year we work five weeks more per year as Americans than we did in 1971 when we coined the term workaholism. So that suggests, yes, workaholism is rampant. Um, The equation, and there's also an equation for calling, because actually uh, you could watch the same person or two different people, and one could be a workaholic and one could be living their calling. And on the outside, sometimes you can't tell the difference. I mean, you might be able to tell the difference definitely in terms of one versus the other, but generally what's different is what's going on on the inside. What is it that is fueling the um, the intensity around what they're doing. When it, For a workaholic, the, what's fueling it quite often is what's in the numerator of the equation. What are you running from? The equation for workaholism is what are you running from divided by what are you living for? And what happens with workaholism, and I, I, listen, I have lived both of these. I have been a workaholic at times, and I have been living my calling at times. So I know what they both are about. And when you're living, when you're in a workaholic state, 
quite often what you're doing is you're using your work as a means of distracting you from something deeper that is causing pain in your life that you don't want to deal with. And, um, you know, and it happens all the time. And in, in, yeah. in, the, in the book, there's, I even give, you, give people on page 102 and 103, 10 different questions that they might ask themselves that help them get a sense of whether they're running from something and whether they really are in the numerator of this equation. Um, but, you know, the, one of the ways to remedy this is the denominator of the equation, which is what are you living for? And, you know, in business and in work, we have, and in finance, we have sort of the, the a term called opportunity cost. What's the opportunity cost? And when you put money in the bank and they pay you interest, which they used to do, they don't pay much interest anymore, but there, there, was, a, there was an opportunity cost associated with putting, you know, ha- not having access to your money. Right. There's an opportunity cost when you put things on your calendar and you don't have time and space for something else. Well, when you start to realize that there's an opportunity cost in your work and how you show up for your work and how your work dominates your schedule, and the opportunity cost is really defined by what are you living for, which is the denominator in the base, it's it's one step toward helping you see that um, if you if compulsion is leading you to overworking, what it's also leading you to is missing out on a whole bunch of things in your life that um, are really meaningful and important to you. Well, I love how you frame that because what are you living for versus what are you working for? Mm -hmm. I think most people go to the question, what are you working for? Well, I'm working for to provide a roof over my head or to take care of my family or to do something that contributes to the world. That's a different question than what am I living for. Yeah, it's very, very, very different. I mean, you know, what am I... I'm at a state, you know, having having had a, a near-death experience or a dying experience and coming back, it helps me to sort of see, you know, life is precious and what am I living for and what, what are the most important things that I want to have and experience in my life. Um, you know, the other question I like to ask myself in this context as well as in the calling context mm-hmm. context is that when you really have a job the question that you tend to ask yourself is, what am I getting from it? Um, and even when you're a workaholic, you could just say, what am I getting from my work? The question I think that's quite revealing, that's just a simple change in the wording, <clears throat> but it means the, you know everything in the world, is the, instead of saying, what am I getting from my work, what am I becoming as a result of my work? And I love that. And the reason I love it is because to realize that our work is such a dominant piece of our life and to realize that, you know, being here on earth is all about how do you evolve your consciousness and your experience on earth in such a way that when, you know, when the lights do turn out for you, yeah. um, you can sort of say, wow, okay, I, I lived it to the fullest and here's what I got out of it. What did I become as a result of it? Yeah. I, you know, I, the fact is our work is... You know, we, we spend more time with our work during our non-sleeping hours than we do with anything else, right. including our family. Right. And so to not even ask the question, what am I becoming as a result of it, and instead just to focus on what am I getting, um, is, I think, diminishing what, it's, what it means for you in terms of the kind of person that you're, you can be as a result of the work that you do. Well, and it's also denying that we can be influenced or shaped by how we spend our time and who we spend it with. 
You know, I mean, I, as an executive coach, I have worked with CEOs and senior leaders around the world, and I often hear from them, well, yes, this is what I do, but it's not necessarily who I am. Right. And I'm one person at the office or in front of the board, and I'm another person when I'm at home. And we have long conversations about this where they end up seeing things my way. Yeah. Which is, you are one person. <laughs> oh, you are well, one person. And you may have different different ways of being in different places, but you're going to show up wherever you go. Mm-hmm. And and we are we are influenced. I love this question. What am I becoming as a result of my work? It's a, yeah. it's a very significant question. It's really simple, but it's it's profound and it's one that some people just don't want to hear either because you know, if you if you see that your work is making you into a wretched person, or you know, always anxious or angry or uh, or feeling more and more somehow um, cynical about life, I mean that th- these are the things that we need to look at. You know, we it's so easy to measure what your salary is and what your compensation package is, but it's so hard to measure the meaning of the work that you do. And that's why, to my mind, those companies that are best at what they do get both uh, what I call the bottom of the pyramid right with compensation, but they also get the top of the pyramid right, and they actually are conscious about what kind of environment are they creating that creates meaning um, for people and that gives people a sense of something more than just, you know, that my job is more than a paycheck. And, um, you know, I mean, to me, that's as fundamental as it gets in terms of leadership. Well, and do you think that there are criteria that we should determine for ourselves you know, to see if what we're doing measures up for us? Well, I think, uh, <laughs> you know, there's a, there's a funny uh, question that used to happen after World War II or after maybe, I don't know, ever, after every war, you know, you, uh, it was like, you know, Daddy, what did you do in the war? Or maybe it could be Daddy or Mommy, what did you do <laughs> yeah, in the right. war? And uh, I hate that. I hate to sort of use a war analogy here, but I mean, wouldn't it be interesting if you know you thought about your relationship with your work in such a way that you were a grandparent and you were you had your grandson or granddaughter sitting on your knee, and uh, you know your seven-year-old or twelve-year-old. Uh, grandson or granddaughter, out of their mouth comes the most amazing thing, and they say, "So, you know, how did your work make you who you are today?" <laughs> like, okay, <laughs> wow. So, how are you going to answer that? What did you do in the war? What did you, you know? What is, what, is, what is it? You know? Yeah. What is it that actually this life allowed you to be as uh, in, in the context of your work identity? Um, the word integrity, we often think of the word, you know, there's a, a chapter in the book on integrity. Yeah. And we usually think of integrity as, you know, the people who are just devout and just they do everything perfectly and they're saints. And, and you know, the, the origin of the word integrity goes back to what we're talking about right now. Integrity means to integrate all of yeah. your identities. And in the world we live in today with all the social media and all the different, you know, you got your Facebook page and you've got your LinkedIn page and you've got Twitter and... <clears throat> How we integrate the very multi-complex ver- versions of ourselves and do it in a way where it shows up with full integration uh, everywhere we show up 
is to me the modern question uh, in 21st century life, especially when we have so many different potential identities online. And um, it's, for me, the, the thing that I really look at more and more because I was a CEO for a long time. Now I'm more of a writer-speaker, and they're very different roles in some ways. And But in both roles, I try to actually, I, I, I mean, I still have a business hotel background, and I still own 17 hotels, and I'm still very involved in that part of my life. And, I, you know, I try to make sure that I show up in that part of my life with the same level of idealism uh, as I do in my, you know, going out there and speaking and, and talking, you know, as a prognosticator about how business should be done. I'm going to talk more about the integrity equation. We come right back after this break. Be sure to friend us on Facebook. You can do it right now. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for us at keyword Voice America. Leadership is not static. It evolves as you do. At Alexa Consulting, we work with CEOs, senior leaders, and leaders in transition who want to make a difference. Leaders who believe that good business is good for people, good for the world, and knows that conscious actions can have global impact. Are you ready to take your leadership to the next level? If you are, then visit our website at www.alexaconsulting.com. That's www.alexaconsulting.com. Alexa Consulting, developing leaders worldwide. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. We appreciate you joining our leading conversations today. If you would like to participate in today's conversation, please call us now at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. Now back to your host, Cheryl. Welcome back to Leading Conversations. This is Cheryl Esposito. Our guest today is Chip Conley, author of Emotional Equations, Simple Truths for Creating Happiness and Success. All right, Chip, so let's get back to the concept of integrity. The formula that you have, the equation that you have for integrity is authenticity times invisibility times reliability. Yeah. So talk about that. I'm curious about that. Well, let me, let me yeah, the... The authenticity and the reliability may have some clarity for people. Invisibility may be less. Um, so when it comes to integrity, if, it's, if, it, if it is about how to integrate all of it in all of your different personalities, all of your different identities into one, so much of it has to do with the authenticity piece. I mean, we, we need, being authentic is, is you know, being self-aware and courageous about who you are such that you show right. who you are no matter where you are. Um, invisibility, I have two quotes I'm going to read that I just think are so right on. One of them is from C.S. Lewis who said, Integrity is doing the right thing even when no one is watching. I, uh... And then uh, Gandhi who said, My life is an invisible whole and all my activities run into one another. My life is my message. We know the last part of that quote, my life is my message. We've heard that before. But you didn't know that the start of his quote was, My life is an invisible whole and all my activities run into another. So the invisibility piece of this is, you know, when someone has integrity, they live life uh, and the way they, they feel they should live their life without worried, worrying about who the audience is. 
Um, and then reliability is just the classic piece of, you know, do you walk your talk? Um, you might be authentic, you might be invisible, but if you actually don't walk your talk in terms of taking the actions necessary to m- make something happen, um, then, then you're not able to live your integrity in your actions in life. And so, I, I, you know, I, there are three components, and, and you know, of, of all the equations, this is not one of my favorites, but it's one of the ones that I, it's more of a checklist than it is a math equation. But uh, um, certainly valuable in, in an era where we've got so much, so many different kinds of personalities with so many different uh, on so many different websites that we show up and we connect with the world. Well, and, and just. Talk to us for a minute about this whole social media thing. I'll, I want to get back to some more of the um, equations, but before we go there, you know, when I see people saying they have a Facebook page, they have a Twitter account, they have websites, they have blogs, etc., and they try to segment, well, my Facebook page is where I show up as this person. Right. Right. My blog is where I show up as this person, and and people make the mistake of thinking that oh, only people <laughs> right. see my Facebook yeah. page will only know this part <clears throat> of myself. And um, what do you think about this in general? <laughs> well, I had a very interesting experience with this, where I am. Uh, there's an there's a annual uh, event called Burning Man, which is in the yeah. the. The Nevada, the Northern Nevada desert, is the largest uh, sort of art festival in the world, and I am on the Bur- I'm on the Burning Man board uh, now. But back then, three years ago, I was not on the Burning Man board. I was a guy who liked going, and I'd been a few times. And I went one year uh, after I'd had a long term my long term relationship end, and I went with my friend Wanda, and we, you know, we had a great time. We took pictures, you know, and. Some of the pictures that she took of me were me, you know, wearing a sarong without a shirt on, dancing, and another one wearing a tutu. And I just put a, I put a bunch of pictures up on my Facebook page when I came home, you know, just not thinking about, you know, the fact that there are employees in my company who are Facebook friends of mine. And uh, after two or three weeks, I got a call. I got a check. One of the senior people in the company asked that the the chief operating officer of the company, uh, who is actually now president, that she come and talk to me about my Facebook page pictures, and they wanted me to take my pictures down. And I guess for me, integrity is being willing to actually say, you know what, I'm a CEO of a company, but I'm not showing any, you know, there's no nudity here. There's, I do have my shirt off, but I, I'm not nude. I'm not taking drugs. I'm not having sex. I'm not doing anything that I think would embarrass the company. In fact, Creating, you know, creating joy, which is what joie de vivre is all about. It's joy of, you know, joy of life is the word joie de vivre in French. I think I'm just celebrating life. And yes, there are some, a couple of employees who I guess may have been thought of me as the pedestal, you know, that, that think of the, they think of me as the CEO and therefore I'm their father. And their father would never have their pictures up on <laughs> of Burning Man. But again, it was, it was a moment where I sort of said, you know what, I, integrity is being willing to actually show yourself for who you are no matter where you are. And so I, I kept them up, and it was uh, it ended up becoming a big issue on the, um, on the, on the web because uh, some journalists picked it up, and all of a sudden it was all over news shows and things like that. So uh-huh. I became a cause celeb for the CEO who decided, you know, <laughs> important to be able to be who you are, uh, you know, in the context of social media. But I mean, again, the, the key, the key message there though, was that I was not doing anything that was, um, going to threaten the company's reputation in the way at least we were perceived. So, I mean, you know, the thing that we have to look at is that, um, 
the social media era and the online era can, is a very narcissistic era. I mean, we are out there promoting ourselves in a variety of different ways. And just be careful about how much you are, uh, you know, the worst thing you can do is to have a difference between your public image and your private reality. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. You know, that that division between public image and private reality is one of the more friction-producing kinds of uh, relationships you could have. So, so that's my thought on that. Well, I I appreciate that. I happen to agree with you. Uh, so, you know, you've you've segmented these equations. One of them, the segments, is dealing with difficult times. One of the equations is around anxiety. Yeah. And, you know, a lot of people experience anxiety, and not necessarily anxiety in what, what is sometimes defined as a clinical form of anxiety, mm-hmm. but simply on a day-to-day basis, you know. Kind of like right. things get them upset or, or it's hard to deal with people, etc. And you describe this as uncertainty times powerlessness. Well, in each of these equations, Cheryl, what I did, I mean, here's the thing that's really important I have not said that people need to hear is I didn't just sort of like, you know, go and drink a bottle of wine with some friends and say, hey, <laughs> let's come up with these equations. In each case, I went out and I talked with uh, experts in the field. And when it came to talking to experts on anxiety, what I learned was that there are two primary components that define anxiety. It's what you don't know or uncertainty and what you can't control, powerlessness. And once you recognize that these, you know, those are the primary ingredients, and it's, and it's really a times as opposed to a plus, anxiety right. equals uncertainty times powerlessness because the combination of the two together is sort of combustible, it allows you to, to take a step back and say, okay, um, what can I do about my sense of uncertainty or powerlessness? You know, anxiety is the number one emotion in most organizations in the United States today. Um, and it is a contagious emotion. So <clears throat> the way to deal with it, and is something I talk about in, in the book, Emotional Equations, is the, create the anxiety balance sheet. And you create four columns. The first column, thinking about something that you are anxious about, the first column revolves around what is it that I do know about this thing? The second column is what is it that I don't know? The third column is what is it that I can influence? And the fourth column is what is it that I can't influence? And once you've actually put all that on paper, what what do I know? What don't I know? Those relate to uncertainty. And then what can I influence? And what can't I influence? That relates to powerlessness. You've got four columns, and 75% of people who do go through this exercise find that they have more items under columns one and three, which are the assets in your life, right. than they have under two and four. And that's because what happens when we get anxious, we tend to fixate on columns two and four, what we don't know and what we can't influence. And just helping get it on paper so that there's things that you do have influence over and that you know you actually, that you do know helps. And then you can look at column two. That's the most important column, I think, is to look at, I don't know something. Who could I go out and learn it from? Because maybe you think you're going to get laid off, and you think your boss knows about layoffs that are coming and that you're, you know, you're at risk. Well, maybe you should ask your boss. But most of us don't want to go ask our boss, or we don't want to ask our spouse if they're having an affair, or we don't want to ask our son if he's snorting cocaine. We just sort of stay silent and stay anxious. Well, instead, you know, what we should do is remember this very famous study from about 10 or 15 years ago where people, it was a collection of a control group that was given the choice. You can either get an electric shock now 
and it'll be twice as painful. Or in the next 24 hours, we will hook you up such that you can get an electric shock randomly at half as painful in the next 24 hours. Most people chose the more painful shock now because they wanted to get it over with. Because then spending the next 24 hours wondering when's the shock going to kind of happen is very debilitating. And once we understand that in our own lives, we may be more open to going and asking the question of somebody like your boss, you know, is my job in jeopardy? Uh, similarly, on the other side, if you're a leader and you recognize that, in fact, your people are getting stunted and debilitated by anxiety and, and because your organization is not communicating something, really important for you to communicate it and do it as soon as possible because with each passing day, you just have a more debilitated organization as a result. Right. So it's really good good information, and that's an example of an equation that's quite practical. Well, and in our society today, I think people have a great sense of powerlessness. Mm-hmm. So people look around and see what's going on and, and look at what's happening with politicians and in our political system, and, 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 and people have a great sense of powerlessness. Mm-hmm. And so... Now, and I've heard people say, you know, I'm not even going to pay attention to that. I'm just going to do what I can do in my life. Mm-hmm. What do yeah, you think which, that? Is, which is wise. I mean, you know, if we're four years into a downturn, and usually the normal downturn lasts about a year and a half, and then we come out of it, and you sort of go, you know, you, you take a gulp, big gulp for air before you go into the recession, and a year and a half later you come up for air, and, you know, you can, you can get some air. Today it's four years, and it's going to be longer. It's going to be it's a very, yeah. very slow recovery, and so you can't wait for the light at the end of the tunnel. You have to, in essence, light the proverbial candle in your hand. And how do you find the candle in your hand that illuminates what's important for you? To me, that speaks to how do we understand our emotions more. So, I want to give I want to give you one last one, which is the happiness equation. I figure we've talked about despair and anxiety. And <laughs> let's talk about happiness and. This is actually the second equation I ever did, and I was lucky enough two years ago to be asked to speak at the big TED conference, the prestigious TED conference, and I was able to present this on the huge TED stage after I went to Bhutan to understand how they looked at happiness, because for 40 years, they've been sort of the first country in the world to sort of say, why don't we create a gross national happiness index? And the more I spent time with experts and you, you know, at the UN who were actually in Bhutan or back in the United States, who are social scientists, the more I learned that the fastest way people are able to become happy if they're not happy is to practice gratitude. It's sort of the tried and true nature of, if you want to get happy, practice gratitude. And practicing gratitude doesn't mean just experiencing it and feeling it and not expressing it. It's also expressing it also, because if you actually... um, if you feel it but don't express it, it's like wrapping a birthday present and not giving it to someone. So that's in the numerator. Um, but the better way to sort of describe this this equation is to say happiness is not about having what you want. It's about wanting what you have. And having what you want, basically, so the wanting what you have is the, is the numerator. It's a division equation. So happiness equals wanting what you have divided by having what you want. It sounds a little complicated, but let me explain the numerator of the equation, practicing gratitude, wanting what you have. When you want what you have, you appreciate what you have, you practice gratitude. Got it. What's the bottom of this equation? 
bottom of the equation, the denominator is having what you want. So to act, the act of going out and having what you want, going out and experiencing or pursuing or obtaining the thing you want is the act of pursuing gratification. And that's sort of, you know, in the, in the United States, that's pretty much how we live. We pursue right. gratification. Right. So the, there's nothing wrong with that because we're sort of used to it and pursuing is part of the Declaration of Independence, Pursuit of Happiness. Okay. But if you, if you look at some dictionaries under the word pursuit, the definition, it says to chase with hostility. <laughs> oh. so do we, ch- do we chase ha- happiness with hostility in the United States? We do at times. And uh. part of it's getting on the treadmill and sort of constantly thinking, if I, if I get this, then I will be happy. Yeah. Uh, and, but Socrates once said 2,400 years ago, he who is not contented with what he has would not be contented with what he would like to have. That's pretty much this equation. When you are constantly focused on what you don't have, you will diminish what you do have. And that's the challenge. And so it doesn't mean we shouldn't pursue things in life. I am a pursuer by nature. But it means that you can't pursue gratification and practice gratitude at the same time. So if you want to have some more happiness in your life, spend a little bit more time practicing gratitude. Um, you know, and then jump back on the treadmill and, and go out and pursue all the things you want to get in life. <laughs> but, but at least allocate some quality time to practicing gratitude. Oh, great advice from a happy person, Chip yeah. Conley. Well, so great most, to have you most, here. Days, most days. Yeah. <laughs> we're so glad you were here with us today on Leading Conversations. I know people are going to want to know more about you and how to reach you and buy your book. Yeah. Well, uh, emotionalequations.com is the website where you can go learn more about the book and you can buy the book on the website. Uh, and, uh, you know, if people are interested in learning more, you can even uh, go to that site and even send me an email there as well. Uh, so so that's, uh, that's where I'd send you. All right. Well, thank you, Chip, for being with us and shedding some light on our emotional weather stations. Yep. We can influence. So buy the book, everyone. It's Emotional Equations, Simple Truths for Creating Happiness and Success. We'll have you back again, Chip. Thanks a lot. Thanks, Cheryl. Remember, everyone, to think big. The world could be a better place because of a conversation that matters. This is Cheryl Esposito. Thank you for spending this hour with Cheryl Esposito and Leading Conversations. You can listen live every Friday at 10 a.m. Pacific Standard Time on the Voice America Business Channel. If you have a question or comment for Cheryl, please email her at leadingconversations at alexaconsulting.com. That's L-E-A-D-I-N-G-C-O-N-V-E-R-S-A-T-I-O-N-S at A-L-E-X-S-A-C-O-N-S-U-L-T-I-N-G.com. See you next week. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. 
Leadership is not static. It evolves as you do. At Alexa Consulting, we work with CEOs, senior leaders, and leaders in transition who want to make a difference. Leaders who believe that good business is good for people, good for the world, and knows that conscious actions can have global impact. Are you ready to take your leadership to the next level? If you are, then visit our website at www.alexaconsulting.com. That's www.alexasaconsulting.com. Alexa Consulting, developing leaders worldwide.